Now, in our Bibles, we will be in John chapter 6. So if you have a a Bible or a device, you can turn to John chapter 6. We're going to begin at verse 16. It will also be up on our screen. So we're reading the section in John 6 immediately after the feeding of the 5,000. And actually, I'll read verse 14 and 15. Our screen begins at 16, but let me read there. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. When evening came, his disciples went down to the lake where they got into a boat and set off across the lake for Capernaum. By now it was dark and Jesus had not yet joined them. A strong wind was blowing and the waters grew rough. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus approaching the boat, walking on the water, and they were frightened. But he said to them, it is I, don't be afraid. Then they were willing to take him into the boat and immediately the boat reached the shore where they were heading. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the opposite shore of the lake realized that only one boat had been there and that Jesus had not entered it with his disciples, but that they had gone away alone. Then some boats from Tiberias landed near the place where the people had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. Once the crowd realized that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they got into the boats and went to Capernaum in search of Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, What must we do? to do the works God requires. Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Amen. This is God's word. Uh, So I want us to begin uh, for the next couple of months uh, to think about uh, the heart of Jesus Christ. 
uh, to see his heart in his public ministry uh, as he faces the cross and after his resurrection, to see his love in action, to see uh, the motivation of love um, that leads him uh, to serve and leads him to the cross. And that's why we're in uh, John chapter 6. And what I want us to notice from the beginning is that uh, what we see in the crowds here is a reminder that as people, uh, we don't change. Uh, and that as people, we're still uh, needing to find uh, hope and we're looking for satisfaction. So we have here uh, around Jesus, uh, a crowd who have lived under uh, Roman rule uh, for a number of years. Uh, they have uh, the hope that a Messiah would come they have the promises of the Old Testament uh, to give them support in that. Uh, they had hope that a greater prophet than Moses would come, a greater king than David would come. And for them, that prospect of salvation, it would be a political freedom. Life in the land, free again. Uh, our setting here is that uh, Jesus has just performed this a miraculous sign of feeding the 5,000. And in verse 14, we heard their response to this. Surely this is the prophet who's to come into the world. And so they read the sign and they have this expectation. Here is this one like Moses who God has promised. And their desire that follows from that, verse 15, is that they want to make Jesus king by force. Uh, they want this political kingdom to come. And then in verse 26, Jesus also identifies another desire. He says, you're not looking uh, for my signs. You're coming because you ate the loaves and had your fill. They're wanting to be well fed. Their hopes are on the political and the physical level. And I think it's fair to say that that's something that we can recognize today. That's something that we see today. Uh, lots of us are probably more engaged and interested in what's going on in the world of politics than perhaps we ever have been. And there is this increasing hope and expectation being placed on our political leaders that, that someone will be able to guide us through this pandemic. And of course, our, our current situation has us at the same time crying out for physical well-being. As people, we don't change. We want to know that we can have a job and a job that's secure. We want to have money to pay the bills and have food on the table. We want to be sure that we can have uh, social connections with friends and family and those won't be taken from us. We want help for here and for now. And so they're not so different from us. And this is where the good news comes that the heart of Jesus remains the same. Jesus the same yesterday, today, and forever. What does he say to this crowd who are confused about his identity, uh, who have a variety of hopes in their hearts? Jesus says time and again in verse 35 to 40, come to me. Come to me as the one who can address your deepest longings. Come to me as the one who can promise true salvation and security. Come to me as the one who invites you into eternal life. And what Jesus wants to show to this crowd and what Jesus by extension wants to show to us is that sometimes our hopes are too small. 
we find ourselves too easily satisfied when the loving heart of Jesus wants to give us himself as the greatest gift he has to offer. So we're going to be in verses 35 to 40 uh, this morning. The first thing I want to say is that here we find Jesus saying, come to me for lasting satisfaction. In verses 35 and 36, Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never grow hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So he's in the middle of a conversation with this crowd that has gathered, and he has in verse 27 uh, already been talking to them about food that endures to eternal life that the Son of Man will give you. In verse 32, uh, he talks about the true bread from heaven, uh, which comes as a gift from the Father. In verse 33, it's bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. From the Father, a gift that gives life. He's talking about himself, but there's misunderstanding at every point. They see Jesus, but they don't see and understand his identity clearly. And so they find themselves saying to Jesus, well, Moses, we know Moses, he was the great prophet, and he gave us manna in the wilderness to our ancestors. What great miracle are you going to do uh, to prove yourself? They interpret his offer in physical terms when Jesus is presenting spiritual reality to them. Jesus has come saying, I am the son of man. The father's seal of approval is on me. I am the gift from God to sustain life, but they don't see it. So Jesus in verse 35 begins to speak still more plainly with this great statement, I am the bread of life. I am, one of the Old Testament titles, names of God. Here is Jesus uh, making a claim to lordship. Jesus, the bread of life. Uh, for the people in Jesus' day, bread was staple. It was necessary, an essential part of the diet. Jesus is saying, you cannot know God. You cannot enjoy life with God without me, without faith in me. And notice he says, not I will give bread. It's not something outside of myself. I am the bread. They're confused and they're looking for a meal. Jesus is giving the promise of himself giving the reality of God to those who will receive. What is he saying? Jesus is saying that to come to him is to meet the core emptiness and hunger uh, that we can find in our hearts, that God-shaped hole that Augustine spoke of so long ago. And we hear it in different forms and we experience it in different ways. Sometimes that, that simply comes as a sense of emptiness in our lives, perhaps asking, is this all there is? I was reminded last week of the, the autobiography of, of Andre Agassi, a tennis player from a previous generation, a very honest and candid autobiography. And he said at one point, he said this, he said, I marvel at how unexciting it is to be famous, how mundane famous people are. They're confused, uncertain, insecure, and often hate what they do. It's something we always hear, like that old adage that money can't buy happiness, but we never believe it until we see it ourselves. 
super successful, wealthy, and unhappy. Is this all there is? That's one way that that our longings uh, find themselves in our hearts. Sometimes, differently, it's to do with a guilty conscience and a, a longing to find inner peace. I was watching a little bit of the the Netflix documentary, The American Gospel, yesterday, which is a very helpful uh, explanation of the true gospel over against the prosperity gospel. And, and on that uh, section that I was watching, there was a, a former atheist who was very honest. He was saying, you know, I had the American dream. I had like a beautiful house, away from the kids and the car and the holidays, but I was crushed by a sense of guilt and I had nowhere to go with that until a crisis in their family uh, turned him to the church and to the hope of the Bible and to Jesus. So it might be a a guilty conscience of wanting freedom and peace, Um, a deeper longing, wondering why, why do I yearn for something more? Have you ever had that, even at that point where everything seems to be so good? Still that restlessness, longing for something more, to all of these, and in that quest for satisfaction that we all experience in different ways, Jesus is saying, come to me. He is presenting himself as the end of the search, as the goal of all our heart's desires. Jesus would say of the growing spiritual interest that we've seen in our country during lockdown, I am the answer to that longing. Find me and find life and find satisfaction because in Jesus, as we discover in the Bible, that's where we find forgiveness and freedom from guilt. It's in Jesus that we find reconciliation with the God we were made for, made by and made for. It's in and through Jesus that we enjoy this living relationship with a God of love. That we have a relationship and a love that can never be broken. It's through Jesus we have the hope of eternity. It's through Jesus we have the hope that everyday life has meaning and purpose because everything we do, we can do to the glory of God, to love him, to serve him. And so there's this wonderful invitation from Jesus to satisfaction. And notice in verse five, it's an open invitation. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. This is an invitation that's regardless of age and culture and background. It's regardless of our our past sin or our present doubt and confusion. It's an invitation to all of us. The one condition on us is that we come and believe, uh, to use the language of verse 35. Unlike the crowd in Jesus' day, we need to recognize his identity. This isn't just a miracle worker. This isn't just another great teacher. This is none other than Jesus, the Son of God, who's become flesh to be our Savior. We need to recognize our need of him, to recognize our sin and our guilt and our inability to do anything of ourselves to fix that great problem and to respond to Jesus in faith. And that's where we find that satisfaction that our hearts are looking for. Now, Jesus goes on from there. The second thing to notice is Jesus says, come to me for a secure salvation. 
so uh, here in Baclou, we have uh, a, a system of security uh, with a couple of different safes through the back. We have a big, heavy, thick metal one for the valuables. And then we have the electronic key safe uh, that uh, gives you access. So you need to have two combination codes uh, to have access. It's a wonderfully secure system uh, until it all starts to go wrong, which it has been doing for the last week or so. But the principle is good uh, that double security gives you peace of mind. And here in the teaching of Jesus, he is presenting us with the security of salvation because he is saying to us, look at the heart of God the Father, look at the heart of Jesus the Son, and recognize that they are united in their determination to save sinners. That commitment is where our sense of security and assurance comes from. For lots of us, this sort of prolonged lockdown and restrictions has probably, probably been a time when spiritually it's been a struggle for us. It's hard without that routine of church. Church, we understand now, is so important uh, for keeping us and, and setting us back on track. But it's been hard to read our Bibles, probably. Hard to pray. Missing a sense of fellowship. And so maybe we feel our faith is weak at this point. Jesus would say to us in our weak faith, remember, it's the Father's grip on you. It's Jesus' grip on you that gives you security. That's your hope for salvation. So look with me at verses 37 to 39. Uh, first of all, see Jesus' confidence in verse 37 when he says, all those the Father gives me will come to me. His confidence there is that the Father's saving purpose is unstoppable. He says, all all who the Father gives me will come to me. When God sets his love on an unbeliever, rescue and salvation is certain. As John Calvin put it long ago, grace is irresistible. And Jesus is pointing us to that for our assurance. What's Jesus' confidence that God's saving plan will come to fruition? His confidence isn't on human response, his confidence rests in the Father's redeeming love and power. His hope rests in God's electing love. We also see Jesus' heart. Verse 37, whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. Notice Jesus isn't inviting us to an institution. He's not inviting us to a set of doctrines. He's inviting us to himself. He's inviting us to relationship with God the Savior. And what he promises is that all those who have been gifted to him by his Father will be kept safe. Jesus will lose none of his own. He won't drive them away. Rather, he will hold his church close. And to give us further confidence, he then draws attention to the will of the Father. So notice verse 38, I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And then he explains, here's what the Father's will is. This is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. 
What's the Father's will? That Jesus will not lose any of his own. That Jesus will certainly save his own. Uh, the Puritan uh, Thomas Goodwin, who wrote a book called The Heart of Christ, which is an excellent read, uh, he says uh, of this verse, God has given Jesus a perpetual command to save sinners. Therefore, his heart continues the same forever. And we see it as Jesus talks about the Father's will, he also talks about his own will. And Jesus says, my will is to do the will of him who sent me. So here we have this wonderful situation where we have the loving heart of the Lord Jesus in his determination to do his Father's will that takes him from the glory of heaven to become one of us and ultimately to go to the cross to die to save his people. So when we think about Christian assurance, this is where we find it. It's in the reality that God saves sinners by grace through faith alone. Here is this double security that we find in the gospel. It's the double security of God the Father and God the Son being united together in one will, committed to love and to save their own. Last thing to see uh, from this little section, uh, Jesus says, come to me to enjoy eternal life. In verse 40, for my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Now, you've maybe noticed as Jesus has been speaking to the crowd that he's brought two themes of salvation together. So he has spoken of our human responsibility in a variety of ways. Come to me, believe in me. Verse 40, look to me. But he's also at the same time spoken of God's sovereignty in salvation. He's spoken of the Father's will, the reality that it's the Father who plans, initiates, carries out, and guarantees salvation. Jesus has no problem with holding these in tension because they both hold true. God is sovereign in saving sinners, and we have a responsibility to respond uh, to the offer of the gospel that we find in Jesus. So God's sovereign role here in verse 40, uh, the Father's will here in verse 40, is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and it shall be raised up at the last day. So that's the Father's will. That's the Father's plan. And we need to recognize that this requires the obedience of Jesus, the Son. That the Father's will and the Father's plan hinges on Jesus being obedient. Jesus living a perfect life of sinless obedience and then dying on the cross in obedience as a sacrifice on behalf of sinful people. And what's our responsibility? As Jesus puts it in verse 40, we are to look to the Son and believe in him. It's an interesting phrase, look to the Son and believe. What does Jesus have in mind in that phrase? 
Well, I wonder if it's not the same idea, the same picture that he has in John chapter 3 and verse 14. So when Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus, and just before we get to the most famous verse in the Bible, in John chapter 3 verse 14, Jesus says this, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. So Jesus uses that picture from the Old Testament. So there's a time where um, Israel was in the, the wilderness and they were grumbling against God. And as a response, judgment came, poisonous snakes came into the camp, but then God by his grace made provision. He told Moses to make a bronze serpent and to put it on a pole. And everyone who looked to the snake found healing and they lived. And now here is Jesus in John chapter 3 saying, that, that bronze serpent raised in a pole, that's a pointer to what I've come to do. And I think we could argue that it's the same in John chapter 6. Jesus saying, look to me and live. Look to me as the cure to the, the poison of sin leading to death that you find in your hearts and lives. So here is Jesus inviting us to life because he and he alone can deal with the poison of, of sin that will destroy us if left unchecked. How does sin work in our lives? Romans 1 is very helpful for laying it out for us. Sin works on our minds, causing us to reject or suppress the truth about God. It works in our hearts, it works in our worship, so that instead of worshiping God alone, we choose uh, to worship and live for created things rather than the creator. Sin affects our actions uh, so that we can find ourselves in spirals of, of sinful rebellion against God and his law. We reject his love to go our own way, and the result of that sin left unchecked is death and not life is eternal condemnation and not the freedom that Jesus offers. So Jesus here is offering hope. He's offering the answer to the great problem that we all face. He's extending an invitation to eternal life. So here uh, in John 6, to the crowd who are confused, who have longings, but they're physical and not spiritual, Jesus says, I and I alone can give you the gift of eternal life. And later on, Jesus would explain eternal life is something that begins now. It's about life enjoying God, knowing God the Father and Jesus the Son. But it's not just for now. It also points us to the future, to the great hope that we find in the Bible of a perfect life in a perfect world filled with perfect relationships. And as Christians, we need to use our imagination and we need to be future-orientated to recognize that, yes, there is suffering and struggle now, but we are promised great hope. Imagine a world free of sickness and pandemic. Imagine a world without sadness and separation caused by death. Imagine a world of perfect peace and not division, of absolute love and not hate of a life and a love that goes on forever, where everything sad comes untrue. And at the heart of that 
the joy of seeing Jesus, of having been made like Jesus, of enjoying his presence, his beauty, his life, his truth, his love forever and always. Jesus is offering himself as the answer to the longings of all our hearts. And it's Jesus' promise, if we come, that we shall be satisfied and we will find security and we will have eternal life to look forward to. Some of us were at a funeral here yesterday. Our oldest uh, church member uh, died and so we were uh, mourning together and we were remembering her life. And, and one of those passages that was uh, precious to Rini that we read yesterday was from Romans chapter 8. And that great hope that nothing and no one shall separate uh, the believer from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. That God's plan of salvation is to bring his people to enjoy life with himself. Jesus says that's his will and he will be faithful to it. So we have this invitation, all of us, come by faith to Jesus as Lord and Savior to find satisfaction and true life.